Well, this week we have seen God's faithfulness in our lives in many areas. Um, Obviously, we are still being held in His grace and mercy, and we are thankful for that. And so we have received the spiritual blessing the Lord has granted us as believers in Jesus Christ. And as a church body, we've been blessed again this week physically with a new um, child into our church family. And we are rejoiced to know that Luis and Joy are the proud parents of baby Grace who came in this week. And uh, we're thankful for his protection of Joy and little baby Grace. And this week, once again, baby number three is coming on Tuesday by God's grace. Uh, Shauna and Adam, well, Shauna will be induced and Adam will be praying on Tuesday fervently. And um, so just remember them and we just give the Lord praise and glory for all he's done. Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 8. So if you'll turn in your uh, Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. And uh, if you're uh, turning from the New Testament, you may want to make a mark in Luke chapter 7, because we will refer to that parallel passage as well. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, and Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. So as we continue in our series of walking through the Gospels, as you know, we completed the Sermon on the Mount last week. And it's a good moment to refresh ourselves into the context of that sermon. We were in that sermon for quite a long time. And so we have to remember that as Jesus was teaching from the hillside, he was doing so in the area of uh, uh, surrounding the Sea of Galilee. And so um, this was an area that Jesus did most of his, a lot of his ministry. And so as we read in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7, he transitions from that mountainside of teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he, and he enters into the city of Capernaum. This is a, a city that was... Um, it was a, a city by choice that Jesus kind of made his hometown. If you'll remember, um, in the Gospels where Jesus was uh, ministering in his city of Nazareth, in the, the city where he grew up and where he lived and, and um, considered these people his town folk and his family, per se, and, and what happened? They rejected Jesus. And so the Bible tells us that that Jesus began to minister in the area of, of the, near the Sea of Galilee, and he actually kind of made uh, Capernaum like his, his home base, his, his uh, adopted home away from home, if, as you, if you could say that. And so he uh, enters into the city of Capernaum for our passage today. Capernaum was um, a well-known hub of Jesus' ministry. Matter of fact, you could uh, trace back the archaeology of this city, and um, archaeologists have found uh, clear evidence of, of 
um, early Christian churches that met there in homes. And tradition says that they've actually found the home of Peter, which we will read um, later on in our story, um, where Jesus actually heals Peter's mother, that in the early church that there was house churches that met there. And as they began to excavate um, the city of Capernaum, um, they would find uh, different, different items and artifacts that pointed to Christians meeting and assembling in this, these homes that they found. And folks, when you understand uh, biblical archaeology, you see that it all points back to the truth of Scripture. It helps us solidify that what we are reading is what is true and genuine. And so Capernaum was a, it, it's, it's not one of those disputed biblical cities. They know where it is um, in the Middle East. They know uh, that it was a, a place where Christians gathered and met. And we know from Scripture that Jesus taught in this area. And as he goes into this city, we read that he begins to minister to the people. And I'm going to read Matthew chapter 8, and I will refer back to the passages in Luke. So read this with me, Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. It says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does this. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And he said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at, at table with uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. So we're all familiar with the story. And in the context of Matthew, Matthew is trying to lay out, and really in Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, the miraculous ministry of Jesus. We're going to see, as we continue through this ministry, Jesus performing many miracles. And if we were going to just stay in Matthew, you would see that Matthew lays out in, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, these continual healings. Power over sickness, power over death, power over the uh, physical natures, power over demons. And he's constantly showing the authority of Jesus Christ over all things. Now in Matthew chapter 8, if you'll look in verses 1 through 4, you'll actually see a verse that we've already covered. It's when Jesus cleanses the leper. The reason we've already covered that is because in Luke chapter 7, or I'm sorry, in, in Luke, we see that Luke puts that story of Jesus cleaning the leper before the Sermon on the Mount, while Matthew places it after. 
And we don't necessarily have to cling to one part of that timeline or the other. I think Matthew organizes his gospel in such a way that, that he places this story in more of a thematic um, uh, theme of, of Christ's authority over all things. Luke, we know, is more of a historian, so I, I, I tend to trust the chrono- chronological sequence of, of Luke, knowing that Matthew oftentimes writes with themes. I'll give you an example. Look in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28. This is kind of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the description of, the, of its closing, of its conclusion. In verse 28 of Matthew 7, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. That word authority, I think, kind of sets the tone for chapters 8 and 9, where Jesus continually shows his authority over all things, authority over disease and a leper, Authority over the the sickness and the paralysis of a centurion servant, the authority over the the winds and the and the storm over two men who are possessed by demons, and so on and so on. And so we we can't help but see, especially in our story today, the theme of the authority of Christ. Not the authority given to him by mere men, but the authority given to him by his heavenly Father. As the Son of God, as the appointed and sent Messiah. And so everything we see in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 and throughout the Gospels, these miraculous events, these things that draw our human attention are really merely just to show us and verify that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. These miracles that we love and that we oftentimes yearn to see with our own eyes are only a validation of his word and of his person. And so this... The story today of the faith of the centurion, my desire, and I think the desire of Matthew and of Luke, is for us to to take Jesus Christ and, and show us that he is worthy of our faith because of the authority he has been given over all things. That he is worthy of our faith. And we see this in the life of someone that you would not expect. We see it in the life of this centurion and his astonishing faith. Now you guys know that a centurion was a Gentile. He was a Gentile and, and, and he was serving in a military capacity many times for the Roman government But history shows us that in this area of of Capernaum and of Palestine during this time, that that this centurion most likely was, uh, although probably Roman uh, in his heritage and by all means a Gentile, not a Jew, 
this centurion most likely was serving as a, uh, as a, as a military official under Herod. So he was serving as a, a protector, a, a, as, a, as a leader over, a, over an army. We know that centurions led uh, around 100 men. So understand for a second the irony of a centurion in this storyline today. Here's a man who is a Gentile who was serving over Jews. Jews, in essence, were like slaves to the Romans. He was a man who uh, was a great military official. He, he was by no means uh, a, a private, in a sense, or, or, or a peon in the military um, ranks. He was a leader. And so you would expect this man not to give any uh, allegiance or care or concern to anything that had to do with the Jewish people. He ruled over them. The Jewish people at oftentimes to the Romans were, were, were just a nuisance. And yet this man shows us something very different. He shows us one, a compassion for the Jewish people. Hold your place here and turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke tells his story a little different. In Matthew chapter 8, we see that the centurion is the one who comes to Jesus. But in Luke chapter 7, Luke tells the story as if the centurion is sending a group of Jewish elders to find Jesus on his behalf. So in, this, in essence, we could say that this centurion has a sick servant at home, and he is pleading on behalf of his servant, and he is sending Jewish emissaries, these elders, to, be, to plead to Jesus on behalf of the centurion who is pleading on behalf of the servant. Where's the discrepancy? Well, there's really not one. Again, Luke is more precise with his history. But if you think about it, if the, if the centurion sent these Jewish officials to plead on behalf of him, it was as if he was speaking through these officials. So where Luke gives us the details of these Jewish officials coming, pleading on behalf of the Roman centurion. Matthew says it was the Roman centurion pleading. And both are to the same end. But notice what Luke chapter 7 says as they describe this centurion. Chapter 7 verse 2. It says, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. So what, the way that Luke describes this centurion is not a man who despises Israel or despises the Jews. This man loves the Jewish people. He's compassionate 
for them. And what we really see about this centurion as a whole is while he is a manly man and a, uh, a, a military leader, he is also gentle and compassionate. Not only one who has cared for the Jewish people and has, has shown his love for them, but this man is, is broken over his love for a servant. Think about that for a second. This man has a servant at home who has served him. And for the, for the Gentile nations there, the, the Roman people specifically, they oftentimes looked at their slaves and their servants as mere tools. Matter of fact, you can read through history and, and read um, Roman and, and Greek uh, authors who, who basically uh, spoke as if... Um, as if a, a slave that was sick or a, a tool that was broken or a horse or, or some kind of animal that was disabled were all just uh, cast aside with, because of their uselessness. That's how slaves were looked upon. But this centurion was full of compassion and he was full, full of love. Matthew tells us that... Um, that he, is, uh, that he has a servant who is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. But Luke chapter 7 tells us that this servant is highly valued by the centurion. He says he is highly valuable. Now we could take that in one of two ways. Does he mean this man has a, a, a high financial value for him. He does a lot of work for me. And, and thus, if I lose him to death, I will, I will lose a, a financial asset. Well, I don't think the context really points to that. The context is showing us a love and a compassion that this man loves this servant and desires for him to be healed. And so we see this compassion in Centurion. And what do we see? We see him seeking out Jesus by faith. He knows the stories of Jesus. Jesus has now entered Capernaum. And he knows that Jesus is the one who could heal him as he has healed other people. And so this man's faith is shining forth in the authority of Jesus. In the power that Jesus can heal his servants' infirmities. We're not told exactly what this man suffer, suffers from besides paralysis and that he is near death. And so we know that G this centurion is doing whatever is necessary to see his servant healed. And so he trusts in Jesus, he trusts in his power. He trusts in his ability to heal the sick. And I think the, the conflict here that we should see in the, in the story of Matthew, the conflict is, is that the centurion is the one who is expressing faith. It's the Gentile who is showing faith in the Lord Jesus. There's the contrast between and we will see this when Jesus speaks at the end of Matthew chapter 8. 
There is a contrast between the faith of this Gentile and the faithlessness of God's people. And we see that theme throughout Scripture, right? Think back with me to the story of Jesus hanging on the cross. Do you remember the, the, the viciousness and the contempt of the Jewish Pharisees and the leaders? Not only were they the ones crying, crucify him, crucify him. But they were the ones at the cross mocking Jesus, asking him, if you're really the son of God, come down. And yet enter the picture of one faithful centurion at the end who looks up to Jesus and says, surely this is the son of God. And I think Matthew specifically is making this contrast to show us the work of God in the world. We'll read, read with me in Matthew chapter 7, verse 10, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How astonishing is it that this Gentile is believing and trusting in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ? Really, it shows us that that faith comes in, in all shapes and sizes. We can clearly attribute by our own theology and the things that we read in Scripture that this Gentile man We can't assume that that this Gentile man came to faith in Jesus Christ without the complete and total power of the Holy Spirit working in him. Why? There's there's nothing about this man's life that makes sense that he would seek out the Lord and, and trust in the power of the Lord except God was working in and through him. That he had seen Jesus, that he had understood Jesus and his power and so he was trusting in him. That his life was changed. While we have the Jews who expected to be the ones in the kingdom, expected to be the ones at the table with the Father in heaven, and yet they will be the ones cast out. And so we see and, 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 and can be astonished ourselves Not that this centurion was this great man of faith, but that God had given this man a great amount of faith. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, let's be reminded that as we come to Jesus and love Jesus and follow after Christ, we must understand, first of all, that that there is absolutely no condition within us that gives us a standing before God as if he says to us, oh, this person deserves the faith to believe in Jesus. There's, there's nothing, uh, there's no condition within me or you or any of us whereby we deserve to have the grace of Jesus Christ that our eyes are open to the gospel. And yet in the same way, there is no condition that keeps us from that 
God is not one who b- grants faith to those who are of certain culture or certain ethnicities. God grants his faith and his grace to us without condition. Because he is sovereign and he is Lord. And the application for us this morning is that that we would also look upon people as those who are in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. That that we would not look upon them with uh, with discrimination, but that we would look upon them as as everyone needing and deserving faith in Christ, or grace in Jesus Christ. And that we would pray fervently and earnestly that, that God would grant them the faith to believe. Whether they be Muslim or Hindu, redneck, whatever words you want to use. Whatever discriminations and, and ways that we divide our culture. Rich, poor, boy, girl. But the, greatest, the greater emphasis here, again, is on the authority of our Savior. Not that the centurion could have possibly conjured up in his own mind the power of Jesus Christ to verbally speak a disease and sickness from a distance and cure a man. There's nothing in this person... There's no military training or anything this man received that would have given him an understanding of that besides the Spirit of God working in him. And yet he knows, and he humbly comes before the Lord Jesus and says what? He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now clearly the centurion knows the culture. He knows that Jesus entering the house of a Gentile would lead to defilement. But he says, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That he is broken and humbled to say, listen, I'm not trying to to avoid social uh, segregation for you. I am saying, I understand your lordship And I am not worthy that you would come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. How does he know this? How could he possibly understand? And if if we could be even confused at, well maybe he doesn't understand that. He gives a great illustration for us so that we understand exactly what he means. In verse 9. He says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So what's he saying? Jesus, just speak the word, and my servant down the road or or in, in my home will be healed by the words that you speak. Folks, there are people in churches today that don't understand that. They think that they have to to do some special um, 
steps or, or, or create some formula in their life for God to save them, except instead of believing that Jesus Christ can save us by his words. That's the power, the creative power of Jesus Christ. He displays that, right? When Jesus speaks to Lazarus from the grave, Lazarus come forth, he comes out. Like there's no, there's no stopping him. Lazarus didn't go, well, I, I think I'm good in here. When Jesus speaks, we come. We pass from death to life. And so let me tell you this morning that as we encouraged you uh, last week to, to receive Christ and to accept Christ, we also, on the other side of that, understand that we only do that because God has enabled us to. And so we challenge you, receive Him. And yet we also challenge you to believe that only by the power can you receive Christ. Only by the power enabled to you can you turn from death to life. And that is the authority of our Savior. Matthew shows us that. He heals a leper in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He heals the centurion's servant. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, he speaks the wind. He rebukes the winds and the sea, and immediately there's a great calm. And so turn your eyes to Matthew chapter 8, verse 13. These are Jesus' words. This is all it takes. Go, let it be done for, your, for you Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Those were the words, and the servant was healed at that very moment. He doesn't even have to say, leave sickness, I rebuke you sickness. He just says, go, and it's done. So here's the question. Did this centurion's level of faith make this happen? I mean, could Jesus have demonstrated this power and the centurion not believed? I mean, we see an aspect of faith in, in the life of this centurion, but we have often seen and we will continue to see many times where Jesus has healed people and we don't see a display of faith because he is sovereign and Lord over all. And so we by no means want to attribute this centurion's faith to be the activating agent to this man's healing. We are cl clearly saying that Jesus Christ heals whom he chooses to heal. And, and, you know, that's an easy thing to see in Scripture and really hard to swallow in life. I mean, we get sick. 
We see our family members and our friends on their deathbed. And we are taught oftentimes that if we just pray and if we just believe hard enough and strong enough, that that will change the course of this history. And if, and if for some reason you play, pray fervently for this healing or this miracle and it doesn't happen, there are many preachers who'll say, well, you didn't pray hard enough. Or you didn't believe enough. Be like the centurion whose faith was so astounding that this man was healed. Folks, this, this man's faith had nothing to do with the healing. Jesus chose to heal this man and give faith to the centurion to believe in his healing. Yes, we believe by faith, but we want to believe in such a way that even our belief gives glory to Christ. I know many of you, you face sickness in your own life. You watch your family members struggle. And I don't think that we should ever pray in, in such a fatalistic way. But we pray as Jesus prayed. We say, Jesus, we say, Lord, if you would just heal this person, if it's according to your will for, for this disease to go away or for this disability to leave them, but not my will or, or their will, but your will be done. Because we, we, we should pray in faith. We can't expect the impossible with God. Because God does the impossible. And yet we must also humbly submit to the fact that as the, uh, the authoritative, sovereign Lord of the universe, He does as He pleases. And that we may not always grasp and understand the plan and the purposes of God. So we trust Him that his plan is good and our definition of good is sometimes skewed by sin. And so the centurion does believe. He humbly comes to Christ in faith. He trusts that, that the words spoken by Christ can heal and, and save this man's life. But again, the greater emphasis is on the authority of Christ. Not only to heal sickness, but also we see to judge. Jesus gives, Matthew gives this, this um, more descriptive judgment and prophecy that will be fulfilled in the end times that Luke does not give us. But he tells us, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Who are these coming from the east and the west? 
everyone that's not Jewish, the Gentiles from all over the earth coming and reclining at the table. Now understand the irony here that, that, the, that the Gentile wasn't even willing to let Jesus come into his own house because of the societies and the norms that had been set, the defilement that could occur because a Jew would enter the home of a Gentile. And yet the bigger picture is, is that Gentiles will be in the kingdom of heaven. You and me. At the, at the table, not, not at the kids' table, but at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While, here's the judgment, while the sons of the kingdom, the Jews, will be thrown into the outer darkness, into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the, the part in the, in the sermon where the Jews are listening and they're hearing this in Capernaum and the hair is standing up on the back of their neck. And the Gentiles are going, what did he say? We're going to get to come to the kingdom? And the Jews are going to go to eternal suffering in hell? And it just reminds us. It reminds us that access to the kingdom is not about your, your physical, cultural heritage. You can't be born into it. You can't marry into it. You come by faith. And that that, that heavenly dining room table, this scene of, of fellowship and unity and love is going to be for all who believe upon Jesus Christ. If you've never read through the book of Galatians, the great epistle of the Apostle Paul, and he kind of elaborates on these truths as he writes to the church in Galatia and helps them understand what it means to be the, the true Israel. He helps these Gentiles in the church there and these Jews in the church there to understand that uh, it's not about your circumcision, it's not about your heritage, it's about your faith in Jesus Christ alone. He has to do this also to the Romans. But in Galatians chapter 3, verses 25 and 29, Paul says this. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you, uh, for as, many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is, the, this is the sentence of emphasis. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, for a Jew to hear that, it had to be mind-blowing. I mean, remember, them being the sons of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, 
was the bedrock of their cultural and, and religious belief. And yet the gospel says, no, you're not truly Abraham's offspring if you are not in Christ. It is through Christ Jesus, your faith in him, that you become the heirs according to the promise. So isn't this a beautiful scene to know that that Christ is the, the, the one who brings us into the family of God and stands as judge He, he's, he's, he's standing there saying, okay, here, here are the weed and here are the tares and, and here are the ones who have believed and trusted in me regardless of how they were born or, or what family they were born into or what country they were born into because they believed in me, they will sit at my table. And these are ones that they've believed in something but not in me. They believed in their religion. They believed in their good works. They believed in their culture but they're not in me and they will face the outer darkness as Matthew describes it. The place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's so interesting to me that Jesus gives more vivid detail about and descriptions about hell than he does about heaven. This fiery trial that we face or this, this, uh, this fiery um, Judgment that, that unbelievers face. He showed us that in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? How the, the bad tree that doesn't bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Remember the, the, the wide gate that, that leads to destruction? This understanding of, you know, being destroyed, being uh, someone who suffers... And then, of course, here, hell is described as the judgment of God. This outer darkness is like an isolation or a separation from God where there is weeping. And understand that weeping is not a, 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 a mourning over sin. It is a, a weeping in the sense of, of, of suffering, of separation from God where you are in eternal torment. And so Christ is once again showing his authority and his power. And we see these elements of his authority as being the one who has clearly showing us that he is truly the Messiah who has come, who is truly the Son of God, displaying these works for all to see so that we may believe in him. And if we could learn from the centurion and his faith, we can learn that faith is not natural for us. It's not. Just like a Gentile is not going to believe in a Jew who can heal people by his word, you are not going to trust in the Savior and Lord over your sins without the Holy Spirit doing that work in you.
It's not natural. But when you come by faith to Jesus Christ, you do come like the centurion. You come as a man of compassion. You come as a man who is broken, saying, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy implies you are worthy. And in the case of the centurion, it wasn't a, a suffering that he was facing, but that he was seeing those he loved as they suffered. And so a sense of faith brings humility. It brings a sense of, of worship and glory to the Lord. And it brings a sense of compassion that a faith in Jesus Christ sees the depravity of our sin, that our need for grace and the grace for people all around us. So as we close this morning, just a simple question. Is your faith in the authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord? Do you submit to him do you trust in him? Do you think that your faith is what is garnering or uh, granting you access to heaven? That as long as you have a certain amount of faith, that level of faith, that you'll be good? Well, if that's the, if that's the question or if that's the way you think, then what level of faith is that? How do you know when you've reached that level of faith? Is it, well, I got to believe in God's rule over my finances and I have to believe in God's rule over my children and, 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 and I have to have faith in all these areas and if I don't have faith in some of these areas then I won't make it. Or you can trust in Christ who is Lord, sovereign ruler of all, who has the authority to heal, who has the authority to judge, who has the authority to forgive sin, and that you could trust in him and in his accomplishment as the one who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross to be the substitute for your sin, and, who, and he died on the cross for all of your sin, past, present, and future. He was buried and he rose from the grave, demonstrating an ultimate display of his power and his authority over all things, including sin, death, and Satan. So the faith that you need to have is not compartmentalized faith. It's a faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that that faith is in his work on the cross. And that faith is something that God has blessed you with and can never take it away. So do you believe in Christ Jesus in that way? Because see, faith is also described in the Bible as something that is equally partnered with repentance. That the person who is poor in spirit, as Matthew 6 or 5 told us, that not only is someone who is poor in spirit, 
but as someone who mourns over their sin, who is also meek and who desires the, the kingdom of heaven, seeks the kingdom of heaven over the, the kingdom of this earth. So in connection with this faith in Christ, if you have true faith in Christ, you will live a life of repentance. And so the challenge this morning is to trust in Christ Jesus. And if you are trusting in him, believer, brothers and sisters in Christ, then trust in his power. Trust in his power to forgive. Trust in his power over sickness. If you're sick here this morning, you can know that Christ has the power to heal you. You must trust this morning that Christ has demonstrated his power over sin, death, and Satan. Which means that he has power over your deepest and darkest sin. So whether it's sickness or sin or suffering, God's power has been manifested in such a way that he has shown you that he is greater than those things. So trust in him. Trust in him to help you overcome those things. Trust in him that if it's by his will, he will heal you of those things. So that we shouldn't live in fear or depression. That we should live with joy and hope in Christ Jesus, our Lord.